of time and space. Everywhere and anywhere, every star that ever was. Where do you want to start? What's the perfect solution to being the head of not one, but two families living around the corner from each other and trying to maintain the secret of your double life? Why, having two Patrick Troutons, or Patrick's Troughton, or something. Unfortunately, one of them is an evil dictator with a secret underground base full of Kool-Aid-drinking hip young people who idolise the man, so it's up to the Doctor to impersonate the mendacious salamander in a Doctor Who meets James Bond epic we're calling You Only Wed Twice. I'm Ian. And I'm Mark, and we're probably going to get sued. Anyway, moving on. In the year 2030, only one man seems to know what action to take when the world is hit by a series of terrible natural disasters. Salamander's success in handling these monumental problems has brought him enormous power. From the moment the Doctor, Jamie and Victoria land on an Australian beach, they're caught up in a struggle for world domination. A struggle in which the Doctor's startling resemblance to Salamander plays a vital role. And we'll be back after this. I don't know where you stand, Mr. Kent, but you and this salamander are obviously on opposite sides. That at least is clear. But which side is good? Which side is bad? And why should I interfere? Well, you're the only man who can help save the world. But isn't that what salamander's trying to do? Don't you understand, Uh, salamander? Jimmy, you're unusually quiet. What do you think? Well, to save the world, I well, it sounds grand, but... Oh, we couldn't turn our back on a challenge like this, Doctor. Well, at least I know you wouldn't. We don't know anything about these people. Bastard saved their lives and just wounded because of it. Oh, but Jamie, well, she didn't... didn't. she was. Look, we're right about Salamander. It won't take you long to find out for yourselves. And welcome back. And we're joined again by the wonderful Paul Schoons. Hello, Paul. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us again. Oh, it's a pleasure. Well, that's the pleasantries out of the way. Ian, uh, time to inflict a little bit of... Uh... Are you suggesting in some way that what I do is <laughs> is not pleasant? <laughs> well, depends on the outcome, really, doesn't it? Well, I suppose it does. Uh, Paul, let me think. You've, we, you, we've done this before, but uh, nevertheless... Quite well, some time ago. It, yeah, it was, it was a long time ago, and um, things, are, things are different now, and... There's no mercy anymore. These are these are oh. these are tough questions, and and if you're found wanting, <laughs> then oh. um, it's it's the time lash for you. It's oh, a no. it's a it's oh. a tinselly mm. death as we face. Oh my giddy aunt, <laughs> the mind probe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not the mind probe. Not the mind, bro. (laughs) 
Lovely. So um, we're going to be, it's going to be quick this time around because we've got a lot to get through in this show. Um, so we're just going to have four questions, general knowledge. Are you ready? No, but go anyway. Okay. Question one. Harder Than You Think is the top-rated Spotify song by which band? I have absolutely no idea. I think I know where he's going with this, Paul. <laughs> Ian, do you just want to put your fingers in your ears for a minute? I'm not a Spotify listener, and I don't <laughs> keep up with current music. So. <laughs> it's, it's, Ian, really, it's really not current. But I'm going to... just look away now. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm going over here. Oh, God. Paul, I mean, I could be completely sending you up a blind alley here. No, no, I vaguely no remember, I do vaguely remember there was a band called The Enemy. I don't know if it's them. Oh. Can you can you see where he's going with all the, uh, the tenuous links? Okay. Get, maybe throw that in as a, a potential answer. I could be wrong, <laughs> but, you know. Okay, Ian, you can, you can come back now. Sorry, I was, I was down there looking at my bottom shelf with some really good books. Oh. Have we got an answer? Shall we go with The Enemy? Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna have to fail you there. It's Public okay. Enemy. Oh, oh okay. no! Right. Oh. oh well, you know I, I had the right gem. Still no. Still no. Question question two. Name Denis Villeneuve's 2014 thriller starring Jake Gyllenhaal. I feel like I should know this. Um, that mine's gonna blank. I thought he was a Formula One driver. I know that's Jacques Villeneuve, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> they're probably all related. It's Jacques, and before that, his father Gilles. <laughs> Can I have a clue? Um, it's a, it's along very much the same lines as question one. <laughs> right. <laughs> So I'm going to guess that it's either got an enemy in it or a world in it. <laughs> in, I wouldn't be cheeky enough fact, to have the same answer for both questions. In fact, if you, can, if you can cast your mind back to the answer you gave for question one. Right. Oh. Oh, that'll stand you in good stead. The enemy. Is the correct answer. Is it? Goodness. Yeah. Hey. So, right, okay. There we go. Question three. Which hmm. 1998 film starred Will Smith and Gene Hackman? Was that Enemy of the State? Oh, how right you are. Straight in there. That's, that, was, that was lovely. Okay, final question. Slight sorry, uh, Ian, yeah. just sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. Was that the movie that had Will Smith buying some lingerie for his wife? And it was a very unusual store you go in where you just have these ladies wandering around in lingerie to, to show you what lingerie looks like in case you didn't know I am starting to wish I'd ever seen this film now <laughs> <laughs> you make a Will for Smith reason, film that, sound that came good back to my mind yeah. Yeah. Um, can I do question four or do you want to sort of linger in the lingerie sort of um, cul-de-sac well you carry on with question four and I'll, I'll just have a bit of a think to myself Paul, I think, I think uh, Mark's going to have slightly more fun for the next 20 seconds than you and I. <laughs> uh, can you name the Nancy Price novel, which was filmed in the early 90s, starring Julia Roberts? Well, given that's a yes-no answer, if I say no, then I'm right, right? <laughs> uh, really annoyingly, technically, you do have me over a linguistic yeah, barrel there. 
he's got there. <laughs> because because my, my, my answer is quite correct. I've said no, and they're just absolutely accurate. I mean, that's a point. That's definitely a point to Paul. Definitely. Um, just for fun, I suggest. I can't believe can someone I has. The you can. You can. Yeah. Is it sleeping with the enemy? It is sleeping with the enemy. Oh, kidding. Well, point for you. Um, I, really you. annoyingly, a point for Mr. Schoons, who has <laughs> taken a linguistic <laughs> rapier to my uh, yes. to, to my yeah, what I thought been... was was foolproof uh, question setting. Yeah. And uh, it's a battle of wits, Ian. And uh, so so nice of you to come unarmed. <laughs> well, <laughs> away I shall slink to return next time. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> Well done. Paul, it sounds as though you're not going to be tossed into the time lash. Oh, I'm so looking forward to it. You've escaped a tinsely fate. Oh, <laughs> better luck next time. Yes, you never know. Um, enemy of the world. It's another absolute doozy. What's your relationship with this story, Paul? Would you have read the Target novel, or how, how did you first come across this story? Oh, it would have been the Target novel. I think and um, that... I started collecting the Target books around the time this came out, because it's about 1981, isn't it? When it, when it's 80, 81, I, I have a feeling it was mm -hmm. the What well, Ian would know, because he, he, uh, he did the novelisation for that one, didn't you? Uh, yes, Mr. I did. Martin. Yes, I did, yes. Yeah. Ian Martin, yeah. <laughs> so, yes, yes, it would have definitely been the, the novelisation, so... And it was a time, too, when there was only a handful of Troughton novels. So I think hmm. that given that my entire understanding of the Troughton... Because I, I, I didn't see any... I wasn't old enough to have seen any of the Troughton stories on television. No. I, I would have... My entire memory of... Um, my entire impression, I should say, of Troughton stories was reading the books. So I would have been familiar only with the stories that have been novelised. So... Enemy of the World, although it's not an, it's not a very common Troughton story, it's certainly one that I, I would have thought of it as, oh, this is what the Troughton era is like. It gives you a very skewed perspective, I guess, on, I'm saying, on, on, on the era. Would that be the same for you? I was awful about the targets. I only had maybe half a dozen, which I reread numerous times. But, uh, yeah, I wasn't the sort of avid collector. I probably spent more time looking at the... Um, program guide just mm. on, like the little synopses and I'd flick through those to, to get an idea of what the stories were all about sure um, so the first time I really experienced the story would have been the the audio which a friend lent me oh, a disc okay. with a load of, uh, of audios on so right. that would have been the first first time I experienced it mm. I mean then obviously I don't think I listened to the audio but so I think my next um, exposure to it would have been the Troughton years for VHS, maybe. Okay. I, I might have, I might have seen a very ropey off air. Well, you know, a, a, a pirated mm -hmm. copy of it because I was borrowing. I got to a point where I had a friend at university who had a, an enormous store of of VHS tapes. You know, this is pre pre um, BBC releasing them, so he'd got them okay. from friends in the UK copied. So they'd filtered from the, found the fan network and they were very fuzzy if you know what I mean I'm sure as everyone yeah. was seeing them so, so you had to watch them for a snowstorm to mm. make out and then obviously when the Troughton that just years, adds to the mystery doesn't it it does it does <laughs> it makes them that much more intriguing and then when the Troughton years came out I would have watched that one episode uh -huh. numerous times 
But again, just like with the Troughton book, it gives you a very skewed perspective because I, I think what we realise now is it's not a very typical... It doesn't give you a very good indication of what the story's like. Well, no, certainly watching uh, season five in order, it is quite a, a stark a standout from uh, the rest of the stories we've seen yeah. thus far. Yes. But, I mean, I have to say, I'm... I'm kind of drawn, in all of Doctor Who, I'm kind of drawn to the stories that stand out as unusual. I'm, I mean, I'm a huge fan, for instance, of Warrior's Gate, and that's not very yes. typical Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. You know, I like, I like the ones which dare to do something different, to break out of the usual format. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, Base Under Siege is thought of as a, a sort of a classic genre within Doctor Who, mm. but... Um, I have to say, having watched these stories before, the thought of watching, you know, half a dozen base under sieges in a row could get a tad tiresome. So just having this to break things up a bit in the uh, in the middle of the season, I think, is a nice, refreshing change. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's to me. To me, it's kind of it. It, it is. It, it is, and it isn't the same as the rest of season five. Because to my mind, it's what would happen if the monsters didn't show up. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it's it's it, it's it's still got a, a confined number of sets, and it's still got humans very much in conflict with each other and arguing most of the time and backstabbing each other, which happens in a lot of the other season five stories. But mm. but in this, it, you know, the big difference with this one is that they're just simply the monster. There's no monsters. They just don't they're not there so it's almost positing the question you know okay now you've got used to this format that we keep delivering to you every week of of here's here's the humans in conflict with each other here's the monsters that come along how do they deal with that here's here's how do the humans react to each other when the monsters never show up Mm, yeah and also i feel like there's more of a sense of scale in this particular story because you start off in australia and then they're off to hungary and Mm. It's a very false scale, though, isn't it? Because we, from a visual perspective... <laughs> scale it's, on a Doctor Who budget. <laughs> it's a series <laughs> of rooms with a lot of people talking about how they've travelled, but not actually getting a sense Yeah, of well, you know. Yeah. Yes. I, well, that said, I mean, I, I can't imagine how much of the budget they blew on the, the helicopter stuff at the, yeah. at the very start. <laughs> and the, the uh, hovercraft as well. It's very high-tech. To, to my mind, it's the beginning of that sort of obsession in Doctor Who with using helicopters and hovercraft, isn't it? It's the yes. If only there was some sort of link between this story <laughs> and and that sort of uh, that's that sort of Pertwee era where they essentially oh wait, hang on a minute, who's this? Di- the director's Barry Letts. Yeah, and video phones as well. Yes, that's the <laughs> other thing that that all, all of the stuff, which is all you know, relatively new technology. I mean, you know, helicopters have been around for a, for a while, but obviously, but hovercraft was certainly very new. Video mm. phones were the stuff of future, and, yeah. and and it was like sort of, hey, let's 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 talk about this, and and also there's all these references in the in the dialogue to to travelling by rocket and travelling by hovercar, mm-hmm. which which you never ever see because obviously, like you say, the budget's already blown, so. Um, yeah. We've also got another, well, not quite a staple of the, the Barry Letts production era, but um, there's the scene where they're in the uh, the park, mm. and instead of having the location, you've got a, a projected background. Yeah. 
which is not quite CSO, but you know, but you, it's, can it, see... you can see he's going on the same principles. It's the same, it's yeah. the same reasoning that hey, let's let's not bother going on location. Let's just throw a throw a background up. I think he does a really good job on the direction on this. Yeah, he he was quite down on it, wasn't it? He didn't he didn't think he'd done very well with it in interviews. I think he, whenever you saw him being interviewed, he always seemed like a very uh, sort of self-deprecating sort of person. Sure. And uh, I think he probably would have been the last one to have been crowing about what a great job he'd done. But mm. I think he's he's done a fantastic job on it. Yeah. Did it? Did I can't remember when did when did Barry Litz die? Was it before or after this was returned? Ah, uh, I got a feeling it was before. Right. So he, what, what, what? I guess where I'm going with this is he never got a chance to reevaluate it. No, which is a shame. Right. Uh, yeah, he died in 2009. Oh, there we go. Yeah, that's a shame. Obviously, for a lot of people who were collecting the DVDs, the uh, the Lost in Time set would have been possibly their first chance to have seen the orphaned episode. Yeah. Did you have that one, Ian, or was that not part of your collection? No, I I didn't. Um, I didn't want to experience bits of stories because I like stories and that would have frustrated the hell out of me. <laughs> <laughs> My wife did find it very strange that I wanted to buy this set with just random it's, episodes it, on. It is, it is a very, um, you know, it's understandable if you're a, a completist, but I have always come at it from kind of story first and the Troughton era was probably the least represented in my target collection I probably had about six or seven Troughtons in total and I never wanted to read this one I saw it in the library I saw it in shops mm -hmm. it was slightly too thick for me when it came to target books I like to get through them in about an hour so anything that was over 120 pages was you know really not the not the done thing I haven't opened up the book in a while but but my memory of it is that the text size was smaller than some of the other target ah, books right. so oh, that would have been off-putting oh, to me as a young kid yeah yeah absolutely and I, I I think when I was a kid I found Ian Martyr's prose kind of I'm going to say heavy going, bearing in mind it's a Doctor Who novelisation. Um, and he's not Salman Rushdie, but, you know, yeah. um, at the time it was a bit much. So the first time I saw this was um, uh, when it was released. I was in I was in Frankfurt in 2013. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. So obviously we can't really talk about the release of this without perhaps dipping into the, uh, the omni-rumour and all of that business. Um, now, obviously, Paul, we're not asking you to uh, give away any uh, insider stuff because you are obviously involved in the, the DVD and, and Blu-ray range. Um, did, were you... Obviously, you must have been aware of this whole Omni-Rumor thing going on. Were you actively kind of listening out for whispers on the grapevine on this, or what was, what was your take on the whole thing? I knew before it was announced. Mm-hmm because obviously I knew people who, who were working on the restoration yeah. of it, but mm. I was sworn to secrecy. Um, yeah. And, but it took me, when I did, when I was told, it took me by surprise. I had no inkling that the, the news was coming. Um, mm -hmm. And I think by this point too, I'd, I'd weaned myself off the forums. So I wasn't yeah. really keeping up with the fan gossip. I mean, one, one thing mm. that I, I found with um, working professionally on Doctor Who, which I started doing um, from about 2008 onwards, is that I just, 
I, I found it very hard to separate my, my fan involvement mm. from my professional involvement. So I just got to a point to pre to step away. Pre the, yeah, to step away from the fan side of things. So mm. I, I, I I didn't engage on 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 club forums anymore. Part, partly because I didn't want to see criticisms of my of my work or my colleagues. I mm. didn't want to fall into the trap of someone reading into something I'd posted and going, oh, it's Paul talking yeah. about something he's working on and that sort of thing. So it, it just became mm. too difficult. So so, but, so, to, so, to cut a long story short, by the time that the so-called Omni-Rumor came out and the, the, the announcement of these, I really wasn't involved in, in online fandom very much anymore. So you probably was, save yourself an awful lot of grief because <laughs> I, I've obviously I, I've uh, been, I'm on Twitter and Facebook, so I see sure. the sort of the fallout from that. I see people uh -huh. grumbling about what they're seeing on the forums, even though I'm not going on there to see it. So I get a sense of just how much agony people are going through over these tying themselves mm. in knots over these potential rumours, mm. potential fines, and everything. But I'm just kind of. It, it fills me with a sense of relief that I'm not part of that community, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I think you did dodge a bullet there because yeah. uh, it just, at one point, it just got, I got toxic. completely sucked into it. I think toxic um, is I, the word. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I've never really been one for forums to a great degree. Yeah. I did used to help out on a very small forum, mm. which was great yeah. fun, run by some really nice yeah. people. And the, the people who were interacting with you mm. were... Uh, all very, you know. Oh, let, let, don't don't get me wrong. I used to be a very active participant in in, in, in fandom, and I I, I ran mm. a, a you know the doc, the New Zealand Doctor Fan Club for many years and, and published a fanzine. So, I'm not I'm not knocking fandom in any sense. I just found the two two parts of my life very difficult to keep separate. So, mm -hmm. I kind of made the decision to to you know. Um, um, so yeah, so we're talking about the the Omni rumor and the missing episodes, and I've got to say that's a whole area that's never really had any interest for me. Like, you know, these stories I tend to think of as being, um, you know, they're not my era, so I'm less invested in them. And right. um, you know, if if one quarter of a story that isn't very good turns up, I'm not going to get that excited about it. That said, sure. the the absolute nanosecond that Enemy of the World went on sale on iTunes, I was there. <laughs> I was hitting download. Um, so what do I know? Yeah. Is that because it was a complete story rather than an orphaned episode, maybe? Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely wouldn't have... Um, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this claim and then four missing episodes <laughs> are going to turn up and uh, yeah, we're going to be put to the test have to sit there and not watch them yeah well <laughs> you know we'll have to see yeah. we've both sort of talked about missing episodes mark what's your what's your whole relationship with that i've always been a bit obsessed with them to be honest i think i either would have been the jean-marc lefissier program guide or possibly Haining's key to time where I first realized there were missing episodes and I think from that point on you just you always want what you haven't got don't you um now luckily we've got the audio recordings I remember Terence Dix's um making of Doctor Who book the Target oh, one oh yes and there's, yeah, a, yeah. there's a chapter in the back going after the stories are screened they're wiped but don't worry they're all being novelized that's just like one line yeah. in the book and you kind of go <laughs> and you just kind of think oh the stories aren't 
they, they're not saved and and that that's that had a huge impact on me as a young fan mm. uh, being very impressionable going oh oh the target books are the important thing not the television stories yeah because that's yeah. kind of what Terence was saying in the book Mm-hmm. Which is weird, but <laughs> well, it's not weird well, when you well, think I mean, he, he alone got all the money from all the target books. <laughs> well, yeah, so he's amazing. got, a, yeah, he's got an interest in that. <laughs> Don't worry, kids, buy my books. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and we did. Yeah. So, so yes. Um, I mean, I didn't really have an interest in missing episodes, other than obviously wanting to see all of Doctor Who. So you know, there was mm-hmm. that. Yeah. But but obviously then I had the personal stake in it after after finding one and that sort oh, of yeah. going oh oh maybe this is something I should be paying attention to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I imagine I imagine finding one must be the closest a human being can ever get to being Charlie Bucket from Charlie in the Chocolate Factory and finding a golden ticket. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do. I don't know Philip Morris at all. I've never had any interaction with him. But I do kind of feel sorry for him in a way because I kind of think that could so easily have been me all that sort of speculation about what he might or might not have or what he's up to, all that sort of thing. And I just think, you mm. know, it's just another reason to stay away from the forums. Obviously, it's a, a wonderful thing that he's done to return those stories. But, yeah, if he's still actively, well, I don't know. It's 10 years on now from when we had them back. If he's still actively looking, it's... Uh, must be a very tricky thing to try and navigate when you've got people trying to second guess you the whole time. And... Yeah, yeah. I think I think if I I'm, I mean I'll, I'll hand on heart I'm not looking, but but if I was I wouldn't be saying anything. Hmm. Yeah. Mm. Still, we have to be very thankful we've got the ones we did. I think this is a an absolute cracker of a story. Yes, absolutely. And I'm just uh, you you guys were talking about getting it on day one when it released on iTunes and I can just remember watching that first episode and seeing the TARDIS materialise on a beach in Australia of all places mm, I'm, I'm in the fantastic. Australasian zone I'm speaking to you from the Australasian zone exactly yeah now yeah. here's a question what zone are we in given given Brexit we're not part of the Central um, European zone are oh, we gosh but you would have been in 2018 though uh, well I mean yeah We'd already voted yeah. to leave, but procedurally, uh, yeah. yeah. I think we're um, at the moment. We seem to be in the fecal zone. Yeah, we'd, we'd <laughs> yeah. be in some little irrelevant zone that has no yeah. real trading relationships with any of the zones. No, yeah. But uh, no. but don't let me sidetrack this and drag it down a, a political cul-de-sac and start beating my drum. It is kind of weird to be, you know, to see, oh, this is Australia, but it's very obviously a cold beach in England. Mm-hmm. From, I mean, maybe that's more obvious to me. I'm not Australian, obviously. I'm in New Zealand, but I, I know what an Australian beach looks like. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure the budget would have stretched to uh, to flying out to Australia, but they probably wouldn't have been able to do that back projection on the... Uh... The uh, the park. Yeah, it was it was the it was the cloth or the trip to Australia. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Barry could have done an Australian beach as a back projection as well. Oh, could have had that. He could have. (laughs) So, what did we what did we all make of episode one? Because I think episode one is kind of a a separate beast from the rest of the the serial. So, I mean, there are people who absolutely love it, and there are people who think it's the most kind of egregious bit of padding in perhaps in the Troughton era. What do we what do we have here? What do, what do you guys think? 
I, I remember the first time I watched it, I was kind of, the thing that struck me the most is, is, is all the stuff you're getting from Troughton, and I'm thinking particularly of his antics, you know, on the beach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We just didn't know about that. That's it. I don't. I don't think it's particular from memory, and I, I'd have to go back and look. But I don't think it's partic- that sequence is particularly well represented in the Tully snaps, and I certainly didn't pick that up from the audio. Mm. Just all, all, all of his sort of stripping off to his long johns and going and and, 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 and about and and, 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 and and dancing a jig in the surf. It just yeah. <laughs> it, that was a revelation to me. I, I, that that would, and I was just sort of delighted that, and it struck home to me. How much are we missing from the stories we don't have? Exactly, you know? yeah. That He's one, such a physical actor as well. Yeah, that one sequence really drove that home to me. That that to me was the thing that stuck with me for the whole story. Really, was was you know what we're getting from re- this returned episode is the is just so much of Troughton's physicality that we weren't aware of. So here's a mm-hmm. thought experiment for you. Can you suggest or imagine any other Doctor? behaving like that possibly matt smith oh yeah. you've got me there yeah actually That's you're right shout. but you're maybe right it is, it, it, it's not really a, i mean i mean at a pinch maybe mccoy uh maybe mccoy in season 24 before andrew yeah. carmel joins that, um yeah that. i just <laughs> for me it's an example of of patrick troughton rather than the second doctor and um hmm. it's always kind of um i've always bumped on the idea that the the doctor would ever behave like that i mean he's mm. he's a you know the second doctor is a, a fun impish clown sure but yeah that's that is the behavior of a you know a fool yeah <laughs> i i I'd, I'd go to the extent to suggest that the entire story is indulging its star it's giving trout and something different to do to keep him interested and occupied and and playing the role, so he's he's getting to play around and do and, and 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 do something silly, but he's also getting to play another character as well. It's 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 a gift to the star, I think, the, the whole story. That's my impression. To be fair, he's just had to do the Ice Warriors, so he probably would want something to uh, yeah to be a bit more exciting. Yeah. <laughs> so I sorry, think Ice Warriors fans. <laughs> so I don't know how much I don't know how much should this. I, I know that the the. Um, that Barry Letts rejigged all the film sequences. We know, we know that from the documentation. So I don't know quite how much are David Whitaker's original tension, because I think it was meant to be a seaside resort, a fun fair or something originally. That was the oh, original. Okay. The original script had that rather than the what we got. And it was. I think the reason for changing it was simply if you have a deserted beach, then your extras budget is 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 not not, not a problem. Because you're not having to sort of employ all these people to be site holiday makers, but but yes, because because the sequence has been rejigged, I I, I wonder if maybe Barry Letts, as a first-time director, was um, that Troughton had his ear in a sense of like, oh, I'd like to do this, and so Barry saying, oh, okay, well, if that's what you'd like to do. Mm-hmm. So I think we really are getting exactly what Troughton would like to do in the film sequences. That's my impression. Well, I'm going to put my cards on the table. I love episode one. I think it's great. Mm. It might well be padding. I'm not going to deny that, but it's entertaining padding. But that is Troughton's Doctor. He he has always got that element of, of, of silliness. 
mm -hmm. tempered by by sort of you know intelligence and wit and all the rest of it. I mean, you know, even when you see him in in the Five Doctors, he's he, he's prattling along about all these, these irrelevant things. It's it, it's just part of his character. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not going to get into a, a bitter war of words with either of you. Um, I I <laughs> I like it less. I I you know it it kind of to me it you you just you just think are you a you know three four hundred year old time lord who's very knowledgeable and clever about things i mean pertwee wouldn't have done that you know tom baker <laughs> wouldn't have got done bad back, colin baker can't, wouldn't can't have jumping around in the surf well no he'd have he'd have found an ice cream vendor probably <laughs> i think each doctor would have found some aspect of beachness and um, you know, it would have worked for them. McCoy probably would have done some business changing behind a towel, you know, um, mm. you know, in a magic way. Um, Colin Baker probably ill-advised speedos. Um, <laughs> Tom, Tom Baker would have w woven a deck chair out of his scarf and two bits of wood. I don't know, you know, everyone would have done something different with that. Um, well, and we saw Tom Baker on a beach, so you know we exactly, we, we yeah. know what happens when Tom well, Baker. Oh yeah, on a beach. but but that you know he was he was asleep. That's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> he was he. What what no one knows they spent about four hours filming all kinds of giddy hijinks, and then Tom has a little nap, and that's the two minutes they film. I mean, oh yeah, such bad luck. I mean, it felt like four hours because that was a very long pan across that beach, <laughs> wasn't it? <laughs> It's canine that goes for the, the the swim rather than the doctor, isn't it? Yes, I think the cast is fantastic in this one. Uh, Bill Kerr, who was um, well known to UK viewers at the time because he was a regular in uh, the Hancock mm. uh, Hancock's Half Hour. Was he a TV regular or was he only a radio regular? I know he was on the radio. He was in my favourite Hancock, the television set. I think he was in that one, which was. Where I knew him from. Mm -hmm. And let's let's not overlook the top build star, which is Mary Peach. Of course, yes. I mean, that's unusual, I think, for Doctor Who is to have a female in the top build. Mm -hmm. We've got two very strong female characters in this definitely, one. Definitely. She's um, very progressive for its time. And and as you may know, she'd recently auditioned as um, Emma Peel's replacement. Oh, wow. right. So I was not aware of that. It's a similar role for her. Yeah, oh, how fascinating. And, yeah, and, say. It's... and and did you were you also aware that such was her star power that it was a condition of her accepting the role that they rewrote the script to give her a larger part? Oh wow. Excellent. In, oh, in other words, her agent said Unless you beef up her role, she's not going to accept. So, so Barry, let's head to go go back to the, to to the producer and script editor and go. We need to we need to improve these episodes for her because Astrid only originally appeared in the first four episodes of Enemy of the World, so she's not in okay. the, the the final two were rewritten to give her something to do, and that was the way they got her to sign up to it. Oh, I'm glad they did in the end because I think she's great in this. I might sound terribly knowledgeable, but I have to admit that when I rewatched this yesterday, I did have the the, the info text on. So. <laughs> <laughs> they are invaluable, aren't they? 
tap, tapping my cap to uh, to to my um, colleague Martin Wiggins here, who wrote a superb set of infotechs for this. Thank you, Martin. Yeah, well done. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's not a story I've worked on, so I'm not I'm not ah, okay. terribly familiar with it in terms from from a, from production perspective. Mm-hmm. I was. Uh, it's a side note, but I I I think the more I know about Doctor Who, the less I know, because the stories that I've worked on in terms of writing the info text mm-hmm. I've discovered stuff I didn't know I've discovered stuff that's completely wrong in terms of what we thought we knew and so it makes me doubt everything every other story that <laughs> I haven't worked on so when I look at you say oh I want you to come on and talk about Enemy of the World my first reaction is oh heck it's not one I've worked on <laughs> so my, my, my gut reaction was well okay I'll see what Martin's found out about it so that's, that's mm-hmm. where but this that, way we we get from. to hear your opinion, you know, as a as a pure fan rather than oh, someone, absolutely. you know, absolutely. So, so yeah. But, but I don't want to be I don't want to be spreading um, incorrect information more than. That. Oh, that's what we're here for, love. It's all about lies. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, sorry, no. chicanery and nonsense. <laughs> I've I, never I, even I, watched Doctor Who. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I should say I'm working on a set of info texts right now at the moment, Ooh. which, which. I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but it's going to blow a lot of um, preconceptions of how the story was made out of the water, because all the reference books get it wrong. Oh, that is And I've run it past. I've run it past my colleagues, and they've gone, "Oh, heck, you're absolutely right," because we've only recently got access to the production documentation, and it overturns what all the books have said. So things like the Television Companion, the seventies. Even the complete history, Andrew Pixie's archive, they're all wrong. So I'm kind of going, okay, this makes me really doubt all the ones where we haven't looked in this <laughs> level of detail yet. <laughs> well, so, that's, you know. that's an intriguing and, and fascinating thing. And now I'm going to spend probably the next half an hour thinking about what <laughs> yeah. story it might be. <laughs> so I'll you... tell you that I'm, wor- I'm, 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 I'm working a few ahead of where we're up to in the release schedule. Mm. So it's, mm. it's not necessarily the next one that'll come up. <sighs> you tease, Paul. That's as much as I can say. This is why I don't <laughs> yeah. go on the forums. It's <laughs> all right. We're not going to grill you for more no, information. Fair enough. Not on here anyway. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, also in the cast, we've got Colin Douglas, who makes an appearance in one of my all-time favourite stories. Uh, he's also known as Reuben from uh, the horror of Fang Rock. Reuben the Root. He plays, and, yeah, and, he plays uh, Donald Bruce. And, and the bus driver from GBH, which was my first uh, exposure oh, to. Yeah. Ah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, he, now, he spent some time living in New Zealand, just to give you that. Did he really? Ah. Well, it's a small yeah, world. As a teenager. He, 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 he's from Newcastle, but he, he, he moved to New Zealand as a teenager. Wow. Hmm. So what do we what do we think of him in this one? Because I'm I, again, I'm just going to upset you both. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I he's, he's he, he, I don't think he's a standout character in it, but he's playing it. He, you know, he, he, there's not really anything. I wouldn't criticise his performance. I just think he's just a very sort of. There's not a lot of meat to his character, I think, personally. Mm-hmm. 
So is this going to consist of me reading out the cast and Ian just saying, well, they're rubbish, they're rubbish. If you have a go <laughs> at Carmen Monroe, then we are going to get into a fist fight. Mate, mate, totally. I am holding everything in for Carmen Monroe. Don't worry about that. Oh, um, she's so good. So good. She's so good. Um, I just, I feel like he's one of those actors who's always really reliably, dependably brilliant in any role. But in this, mm -hmm. I just felt he was not exactly tripping over the lines, but just sure. kind of getting them out and not yeah. really understanding what he was saying. And mm. I mean, you know, there's, it's that old thing of obviously when they were producing this story, they couldn't have known what the future would look like and how people would look and, and we'll, we'll come to Bennick soon. Um, but, um, <laughs> but he it's, just, it's he, very, yeah. you know, he just didn't evoke the kind of sinister, um, presence that he was meant to. He just looked too sort of too much like the school caretaker to be the second most important man on the world. Can I quote from Martin's infotext here about Colin Douglas? Um, there's a direct quote from one of the lines of Infotext. He remarked at the time that it was the worst thing he'd ever done and he didn't want to be asked to do another Doctor Who. The very next thing that appears on screen, he later played a possessed lighthouse keeper in Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's interesting. So so maybe he did, if he, if he thought the material was... Um, I don't want He's to not say, invested in I don't it, want to say beneath him, but yeah, there is yeah. there is some yeah. degree of remove sure. between yeah. where he needed I'd to be and that. where he was. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally agree. Yeah. Let's let's sashay merrily through the cast. Mark, who's next on your radar? Oh, for me it's gotta be Milton Johns oh, Bennett. I think he's just he is so perfect at playing these really the characters that you just love to hate. He's such a little weasel. Yeah, you get, you get the sense you get the sense from the script that Bennick isn't meant to be as as prominent as he is, but he just eats it up whenever he's on screen. He's just <laughs> he's can't take of, your eyes off him. That's just the yeah. hair and the so right. ridiculous costume. I'm, What's going if on you, there? Right, if you're bringing it up, that hair, Jesus <laughs> Christ! Yeah. So it looks terrible in episode one, and then manages to look sure. progressively worse as the story continues. <laughs> and I wonder if he thought to himself, "How can I steal the scene in this story? Mm, How can yeah. I stand out Not when I'm when I'm in the same it. story as Carmen Monroe? How do I get the viewer mm. to remember me above yeah. all else? I know. I'll go to my <laughs> barbers i'll get them drunk then i'll get them stoned <laughs> then i'll sit upside down and say give me a mullet <laughs> what was happening I, I on his I head if it might, i wonder it's so outrageous i wondered if it might have been a wig <laughs> i think it was probably two two wigs stapled together i mean it was just yeah. you know it's not a style you don't see other people you don't see a bunch of actors from <laughs> the 60s having that hairdo turning up in a bunch of different shows it's just sure. my god that hair <laughs> Look, i've seen enough episodes of neighbors and the flying doctors to know that the mullet is is quite popular in australasia the mullet alone <laughs> wouldn't have been a problem it was the mullet with that sort yeah. of fringe that had been sort of <laughs> chopped into oh. and 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 he's got a curiously shaped head to start with so it just is the it most it doesn't, it, yeah. you know using your hair as an offensive weapon ought to be some kind of war crime yeah but i and think he still it works kills for, it. i think brilliant. it works for his character yeah 
it absolutely does. It, 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 because, because he's just so, you know, awful, to, to, to have such an appearance, I think, really works for him. He is always mm. one of those... Uh, well, he's not always one of those. He always gets those kind of parts where you have to despise him. Um, mm. And, you know, I... I I couldn't tell you any, but as a as a kid growing up in the eighties, I want to, you know, I feel like he was always on TV, and I was always cross with him about something. <laughs> um, but this is, I'm going to say, easily his his most kind of um, scene stealing performance in because you know normally. In subsequent stories that, that have the, the gift of Milton Johns, he's in a smaller cast, he's in a bigger role. It's it's less of an achievement to dominate the proceedings. But in this, when he's up against an awful lot of other people, to really come away from this as the, the one you remember, I think it's an mm. extraordinary piece of work. Yeah. yeah he's, he's just... I, I, I think he's the standout cast member, to be honest, for me. Mm. Because you know, not because you like him in any sense, you know, quite the opposite. But he's just doing such a good job of portraying this utterly despicable, utterly evil person. It just, yeah, I, yeah. I, every time I've watched Enemy of the World, I've, I've been drawn to his performance. It, it's just so. Yeah. He, he's got a delicious camp sort of twist. Um, yeah. Which probably is 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 part of his toolkit. I'm pretty sure he's mm. he's done similar things in other stories as well. But there's just there's a, there's a wonderful kind of black humour in that in that kind yeah. of dismissive camp thing he does. Um, I think he's, he's extraordinary. And you know, probably just he went to the hairdresser and say, "Make me look faintly insecty because I'm." <laughs> Playing a sort of human cockroach, as I, Milton Johns, am wont to do. <laughs> oh, I think he's magic. I think, like you say, whenever he's on the screen, he just steals every moment. Mm. And talking of people who you can't take your eyes off when they're on the screen, we have to talk about the lovely Carmen Monroe. So, mm. ooh, best best person in Doctor Who ever. Yeah, I don't think you get too many arguments on that score. Yeah. Oh. Well, okay, that was that was uh, that's the end of the conversation. Thanks both so much. <laughs> well, I mean, after 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 a scene with her in it, there, anything else we could go on to talk about would just be a footnote. So, um, mm. yeah, let's just give her ten out of ten and and, and wrap it up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she does an awful lot with a not a particularly massive part, and she just absolutely knocks it out of the park. Hmm. Definitely. Yeah, I think a lot of people, um, you know, go go on is the wrong word, but a lot of people talk about Mary Peach. Um, you know, she's fine, sure, but it's all about it's all about Freya for me. Not not mm. why have they both got such similar names? The two they get two women, they get two brilliant actors yeah. in this, and one's <laughs> called Farrier and one's called Freya, and it's a bit like could you not have? Oh, even even. On the rare occasions when you get females <laughs> to be in Doctor Who and you give them strong roles and one of them's even a person of colour in the 60s, you still manage to cock it up by giving them essentially the same <laughs> name so that people can't remember them as clearly as they would like to. 
the the only saving grace with that is that they barely mention Astrid's surname in the course of the story. I mean, she's almost always just referred to as Astrid. But you make a good point. Mm. It's it's a little thing, but um, mm. you know. But yeah, she was she was Stella, and obviously, um, leaping ahead when she when she bites the bullet at the end. Um, mm-hmm. Well, not even at the end. Was it part four? I'd have to look at my notes, and I'm not that mm-hmm. kind of dedicated professional. <laughs> um, I would have just probably drawn a little sad face. So, uh, anyway. Uh, it is episode four. Yeah, but that was... I was really upset about that. Mm. Really? Why did they have to do that? I, I mean, I know that's yeah. how storytelling works, but good Lord. <laughs> good Lord. Well, we don't know what Astrid's fate would have originally been, but we would have been bemoaning that both of them would have left in that uh, mm. that episode if if uh, Mary Peach's agent hadn't put his foot down, because they were both going to be written out in episode four. So, if if Carmen had had a better agent, she could have carried on to episode Correct. six as well. Oh. Correct. Astrid could have been the one who got gunned down, and 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 yeah, you know, oh. could have been the one that lived to the end. I want to live in that universe. Yeah. <laughs> oh. In fact, there must be a universe where she became a companion. That's the universe I want oh to live in. Oh, my giddy arm. Gonna, mm. Can you imagine? I'm going to break through mm. into a into the multiverse, and I'm going to pick that universe. And, um, <laughs> yeah, and she'd still be in it now, and she'd still be absolutely mm. amazing. Um, what did we think of the Formula One uh, driver, Fernando Alonso, as Salamander? <laughs> <laughs> what is that accent? It's uh, it's different. It's definitely different. It's sort of I want to say Spexican. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've always wanted to to meet a a um, a Doctor Who fan from Mexico and see what their take oh on, my goodness. on the yeah. on that accent is because I'm pretty certain they wouldn't wouldn't recognise it as as something from their their culture. Well, no. I, I'm sure if there's anyone from Yucatan, which uh, I think was where they said he was from, mm. he was they're he bound was, to recognise it straight away. He was certainly <laughs> born near the Yucatan Peninsula. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's. I mean, you know, again in the '60s, uh, who would have known that that wasn't a very authentic accent? You know, um, but uh, yeah, it was. It was quite a thing. It was quite a tour de force. Um, I think it's probably my my favourite Troughton performance outside of the War Games. And are you saying specifically Salamander or the Doctor? Specifically Salamander. I think it's it's really good to see him getting his teeth into something meaty because I think his instinct, as we were talking about earlier with the beach sequences, his instinct mm-hmm. is to be fun and frivolous and frothy. But I think it's when he gets to do something with real heft that you get yeah. to see that kind of flinty um, power that he has, that that steel. Mm. I think he's absolutely There's a compelling. lot going on in that performance as well because he's having to be the Doctor and Salamander and the Doctor pretending to be Salamander, and it's a very And Salamander pretending to be the Doctor as well. You've yeah, got yeah, four, yeah. four performances in that stuff. <laughs> what a tangled <laughs> web. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it all rests on, on that believability. I think he absolutely knocks it out of the park i think he does a great job with it yeah 
Yeah, there's that scene, isn't isn't it, in episode five where where you're not quite sure if he's Salamander or the Doctor, mm-hmm. and and even Jamie and Victoria don't aren't sure. Yeah, that that was quite a quite a powerful scene, I think. Mm-hmm. And he's just absolutely playing it. It's he's he's playing the Doctor, but playing it so convincingly as Salamander that even his own companions can't recognize him. And then gradually mm-hmm. he comes out of that performance and 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 just very so subtly switches into being the Doctor. And I, I, I it's such, a very it's, smooth transition, isn't it? It is. It is. And I think that's just a beautiful scene. I've got to say, um, I'm a little bit surprised to hear all this because after episode four, I sort of stopped noticing that people like Troughton um, uh, and and Mary Peach are even in this because once it becomes The Colin Show, um, who's who's got bandwidth to notice anyone else? What is he doing? (laughs) What does it? What program has he been told he's he's appearing in? What's he taking, and can we have some? <laughs> <laughs> yes, the um, that is one hell of a plot twist, isn't it? I mean, it's it, it it's it's unnecessary. You, you don't see it coming. It it adds a whole, you know, completely further dimension to what's already, I would say, a a, a very good story with plenty going on and 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 it could have continued doing what it was doing quite happily but then yeah you've got this kind of silo um they should make a tv show called silo um what a good idea yeah mm, that would be good um yeah they've got this silo underground and and by the way the the shot of salamander's little sort of personal rocket thing flying down into that that's incredible that's really good i'm assuming Mm. that was taken from you know a movie or something no 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 they actually shot no it's all done so could they not have just reused that shot over and over again to show people traveling from hungary to australasia and and what have you because that that, wouldn't you that was an absolute you know a bit of an oversight that was so good i must say the first time i watched this when it downloaded via iTunes uh, for a, a short while I thought Colin was played by Richard Franklin I can see that yeah <laughs> yeah I can see that there's there's something that, you know he's he's very um he's really trying it's very colony he's really trying he, w- he really wants to he wants you to believe in this guy who's absolutely gagging to see the surface and the level of passion and intensity he brings to that i mean i seem to remember a couple of months ago um the last time i saw this story i I actually googled the actor and tried to see what else he'd done and i couldn't find too much but i i feel like there was a role out there for him yeah i wondered if you know (laughs) if if he'd wandered into the wrong studio and he's actually from a completely different program because his performance is just so out of keeping with everyone else around, around him. You know, he's just... It <laughs> really such a is. bizarre yeah. performance. It is. It's so, it's so he, strange. He's, he's meant to be in Studio C and something completely different and he's just gone onto the <laughs> wrong set. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, again, this... And, and this might just be because it was Barry Lett's uh, first time as a director, but... If it was me, 
I'd have put an arm round him and said, we're going to go again, love, and this time yeah. I want you to be yeah. a little bit less, <laughs> you know, yeah. just be a bit more, you know. And I think with those... Yeah, I think with those notes, <laughs> he'd have he'd have got it. You know, be a bit more yeah. like Colin, uh, Colin Douglas. Just don't give so much of a shit, yeah. you know. But, just but, you take know. the money <laughs> at the end of the day. But, you know, having given that performance in his first scene, he, he commits to it. He really does. He, really he doubles other, down. Yeah, every, every other column scene, he's still giving that same performance. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to admire his passion and commitment. <laughs> did he get a scene with Milton Johns? He didn't, did he? No. What, no. What, a, no. what a thing that would have been. <laughs> oh. What a, a jewel of the fates, if you will. It would have been like yeah. when, oh. when Vader meets Obi-Wan at the end of Star Wars, you know? It's like, oh... <laughs> And what we're saying is there should be a season 5B where uh, the Doctor and Faria come up against Bennick and Colin. So, so, you know, someone, punch someone, up at the end. someone from Big Finish is, 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 is listening to this and taking notes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Imagine we get to see some sort of face-off betwixt mm-hmm. Colin and Milton. Who's coming out on <laughs> yeah. top? Who's, who's winning yeah. the day in oh, that Benick, scene? every time. You think? Come on. Yeah. You think you think the duplicitous and shifty Bennick would run rings around the the uh, honest and uh, upstanding Colin? Actually, there was a, there's a bit where you can almost never mind. Very t- very tight <laughs> body suits they were wearing down there. Very 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 fitting garments. Very snug. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's let's move the conversation on. The coming coming back to that left descent that we were talking mm, about. Yes. That's like the beach sequence. That's another thing that struck me when watching it is that we just wouldn't have gotten an appreciation of just how good that looks when we would just yeah. have the audio. So it, that's the other example of a, something that, that we've really gained from getting the actual episodes back because we're getting to see this wonderful piece of effect shot, which, like you say, you was convinced came from another, another program that's so good. And, and yet it's, we, we, we just, or, or if you just listen to the audio, you just sort of, sort of clunk and whir and, and, and no appreciation yeah. of just what was happening in that scene. And without wishing to spoil ourselves too much for next season, I do wonder if something like the Space Pirates could be a, a revelation if we got some episodes back because of the... Uh, well, I was I was talking to Paul while you were off air, and I was saying probably an episode of something will turn up pretty soon, and then we'll have to start this whole podcast all over again, <laughs> um, and we'll we'll have to see whether I'm there downloading it as soon as I possibly can, despite mm, my yeah. affected insouciance when it comes to missing episodes. <laughs> whether I'm actually <laughs> going to be straight in there. <laughs> so yeah, Space Pirates Five, I'd, I'd guess. Yeah. It's it's unfortunate for something like Space Pirates that it is such a visual story that that it is one of the missing ones, you know, because it's just like mm-hmm. we're, we're, there's so much we're not seeing. I mean, obviously, we're not seeing, but you know what I mean. It's not a yeah. it's not a dialogue heavy story. It's it's, yeah. it's very much rests on its visuals, and the visuals aren't there. Yeah, mm-hmm. it could be it could be as good as one of those kind of Flash Gordon or Buck Rogers serials from the forties, you know. Um, it's that kind of vibe. It's 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 sets and action rather than dialogue. So in my, when I was reading the Terence Sticks novel, and there was a book you can read in under forty minutes, um, <laughs> that was you know that was what was going on in my head. It it looked brilliant. Mm. 
Well, let's keep our fingers crossed. Mm. Is it me, or in this story, does the Doctor take an awful lot of convincing before he actually decides to get involved and and try and take down Salamander? I have a theory around this. I, I think we've got to think of the writer here. It's it's David Whittaker, and his his touchstone is the Hartnell era, because that's where he was scripted. Mm. So that's, that's for his understanding of Doctor Who. And it would be consistent for Hartnell's Doctor to spend a lot of time discerning what exactly what was going on and, and, and before... And, and being reluctant to act, whereas Troughton's someone much more who would just jump in and, and get involved. So I think, mm. I think almost Whitaker's writing him as Hartnell in a sense like that. That it's a, it's, it's that sort of all oh, we shouldn't interfere thing. I think that is a very good theory. I think you're right on the money there. I don't know. I feel like it's a very early story from Trial of a Time Lord, and and it's it, it all hinges on the Doctor being required to act. And that's the nub of his defence, but it takes a long time to build up to that. Mm. Um, if from a logistical perspective, too, I think they want to keep Troughton out of the action because otherwise you've got the problem of him running into Salamander much earlier than he does. So that's his, re- true. his reluctance to act means that he hides in a caravan or he's off doing something else. He's not. Mm-hmm. He, he's not instantly going because otherwise you go. Oh, why is he not going to to um, Salamander's villa and confronting him in episode two? Oh, while you're mentioning the caravan, uh, another uh, bit of the budget there being spent on a on a set. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, although we didn't have any monsters in this story, there was a frankly distressing scene with some plates being smashed. Which, oh, yes. Uh, oh, that was so brutal, wasn't it? That's spine. the most the, evil the, thing the cro- I've ever seen in Doctor Who. <laughs> the crockery budget you was know. blown out, wasn't yeah, it? You know yeah. they're bad when they go around smashing up plates for no good reason. What yeah. uh, What you don't know um, is that uh, Milton Johns actually had to provide all his own crockery because <laughs> he, he blew the BBC's crockery budget in the first take, muffed his line. <laughs> And then had to go go again. So he brought all his (laughs) mum's fine porcelain and had to just whack it to pieces. Did you know that he was actually of Greek descent and that was how he got the role? Oh. Yeah, because they're very fond of smashing plates at the end of a meal, aren't they? That's Isn't it? Isn't that a a, a wedding thing? Yeah. So did he get married? Perhaps the producer of the show went to his wedding and saw him and thought, yeah, he'd be good. (laughs) <laughs> that's the that's the sort of thing that happens all the time. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes, that was a shocking scene. Surprised it didn't get a fifteen rating on the. I, that's the sort of thing that should have been one of those little Australian censor clips because they just can't show something that. Yes. That <laughs> yeah, it's just too distressing. Yeah. It's it really you know. It, it, we're used to people being stunned and shot and gassed and you know dangled over things and electrocuted and but but smashing a man's crockery good lord is there is there yeah, no is there no humanity a man's caravan is his castle you can't just walk in and yeah. start smashing up the crockery I thought Jesus. I thought Butland's security was better than that I've got to say <laughs> I'll be going elsewhere from now on Mm. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to admit it's a very sophisticated caravan, though, because it has the function of when someone passes through it wearing a helmet, their helmet changes colour. <laughs> oh. 
Oh, I must admit, I've seen it so many times, I'd never noticed that. Well, the, the guard that cha that confronts Astrid and then chases her when, when, when she leads the caravan, he's got a black okay. helmet when he's inside the caravan, and it's white when he's outside. Ah. So the moment he leaves oh, the caravan... That's... So I think there's a field there's a field around the caravan door that just changes the <laughs> changes the color of the helmet. <laughs> or it's or it's a sort of global hypercolor helmet and it reacts to the ambient temperature oh. and when he goes Let's out in go the sun. With that. Yeah. Yeah, it's re it's it's reacting to um Salamander's sunstore in orbit, isn't it? That's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Is there an answer to everything? <laughs> Are you you wearing my black helmet from the 1999 <laughs> Monaco Grand Prix? I wear this yeah. when I win. <laughs> In America, <laughs> that was. I had no idea that Papa Lazarus was in. This it wasn't. Episode. It was. The, it was the dad. It was the dad in um, League of Gentlemen. You know the Greek dad. <laughs> oh my oh, boys, yeah, okay. you yeah, are yeah. a merry queen. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah, that's that's. So if Fernando Alonso's listening, he's probably going to sue me now. So yeah, so thanks, probably, yeah. thanks guys. The the views of Ian Martin are not the views of this podcast. <laughs> Ian Martin. Oh, yeah. I think Sorry, I think yeah, you'll yeah. find I'm I'm called Ian yeah, Ian yeah. Martyr if you are a lawyer yeah. or any, yeah. any sort of yeah. practicing attorney. <laughs> Do you have anything else we want to get off our chest about this? There's thing? a lot of rubber gimp costumes in this story. Well, <laughs> the, I mean, how do I? Is that how do I follow is up that, on that is that it is that a, is that code for futuristic or is that code for villain? Having a, having that sort of skin tight black rubber outfit. It's the future, Ian. Is Everyone's it? Wearing so you got you yeah. got Federin, who is clearly not evil. Um, Jamie wears it for a bit. Obviously, Benick's in and out of that when no one's looking, like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> <laughs> it's. I mean, it's it's a fascinating story because as we as we've sort of mentioned, you've got these very what presumably would have been a very expensive effects shot of that. Capsule going down into the silo. Um, mm. You've got you've got the rear projection, so there's a lot of innovation. There's money spent on things like the helicopter, um, and then you've got you've got kind of cheap things like the caravan. Um, you've got Milton John's hair. You've got you've got brilliance. You've got unbelievably awfulness. Um, it's just such a a real hodgepodge of a story. It doesn't. It's got it it's, all. It has That's got it all. It, that is what I'm trying yeah. to say. It's got a little bit of everything from all mm. ends of the spectrum. <laughs> do Do you think that it's an it's an odd story in that, it, particularly in the first few episodes, it keeps sort of twisting and turning, and you can't sort of quite pin it down. I was thinking it reminded me of was it Evil of the Daleks, where it's sort of two episodes of this, and then it's two episodes of that, and mm -hmm. then we go over here, and it's two episodes of this. Mm -hmm. It, you know, because you've got uh, sort of parts five and six is is kind of silo yep. based and and more about what Salamander's really up to. Episode one, I th I think is really there just to kind of delay things for 25 minutes. Yeah. Um, and the early part of the story, sort of episodes two and three, is all about this kind of quasi-Shakespearean, we've got two people who look the same, let's have a bit mm -hmm. of fun with that. And yeah. Jamie, well, Jamie's episode subterfuge. three is about the... Uh, the uh, kitchen and the uh, the security vestibule. Yeah, yeah. I, th I thought we'd be the only podcast to get away with not mentioning that, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. So, 
cells traditionally have always had four walls and a door because it's <laughs> very difficult for a prisoner to escape from that kind of setup. Mm. Where I feel they've made an error with this whole corridor approach <laughs> is you've got you've got two ends to that bad boy through which anyone could run and you're, you've got you've got nothing. It's um it's such a rookie error and it undermines the you know the the capability of of this global menace if they can't even lock someone up properly um are they that scary hmm. there's, there's a lot there's a line in the script that would have helped that scene that they didn't use where where one of the characters um explains that all the other rooms and have got windows that he could have escaped out of and that's why they've chosen to put him there <sighs> i mean buy some bars do you know what yeah, I mean? Just, oh, <laughs> just oh no, we have got a cell, but um, yeah. it's got it's got um, it's got a cockroach in there, so yeah. we can't use that <laughs> health and safety. I'm afraid, so yeah. you'll have to leave them out here. Uh... <laughs> yeah. So I mean, we've talked about um, the extraordinary performances of, of, of Milton Johns and, and and the lovely Colin, but what about Griffin? Oh, he's great. I love Griffin the Chef. Yeah. But he's, again, such a scene stealer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing is, if you're, I suppose if you're in that situation and uh, you've only got a limited amount of screen time, you're going to just do whatever oh, you can you, to he's really just going for make it, an isn't impact. He? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Much like Colin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it's almost like he's playing it like Griffin is the star of the show. Griffin yeah. is the most important character in the story. Mm-hmm. It's it's quite an impressive performance. <laughs> so there's clearly yeah there's there's I would say probably three performances uh, outside of Troutons where you have people assuming it's really their show, and I like yeah. that. I think it's I think it. It oh, I'm brings not so much. No, no, I'm not. I'm not interpreting yeah. the. the yeah. I think it's so good when you get actors who are kind of. I don't know if willing to do that is the right expression because I think all actors are quite happy to be the centre of attention. That's kind of yeah. what the job entails. But to to really go, you know, the the full Graham Crowden is always mm. commendable. Well, I was thinking of uh, Bernard Kay as Saladin in the last story that we talked about with Paul. Yes. He was very much uh, the hero of his story. Absolutely. I, I kind of wonder if, if during rehearsals that these performers saw Troughton doing his salamander and gone, oh, that's how we're going to play it. <laughs> <laughs> so it almost became a bit of a sort of a competition as to see who could mm. give a, deliver the biggest performance. That's a wonderful thought. I mean, yes, when when you're when you've got this many sort of big beasts in your jungle and you're capable of, you know, butting chests with them, I suppose it's mm. going to bring out the best of everyone. I mean, everyone. Um, I think, yeah. irrespective of whether or not you think everyone gives a good performance, I think everyone gives mm-hmm. a a big performance. They're certainly interesting performances. Even even the three guys in part one in the helicopter, even their hair yeah. is giving a big performance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we haven't mentioned Castellan's band yet. We have haven't, we? no. Prav- no Pravda. This yeah. is chock full of Doctor Who royalty. 
a man who for years thinks the target book I thought his character was called Deans. Oh. Well, you would, wouldn't you? You would. Because without, you know. without one of those little umlauts over the S, you're yeah. never going yeah, yeah. to know well, to give it the silent To be H. fair, you know, we all had that sort of Mask of Mandragora. Thing, didn't <gasps> oh, we? I, I, back in I totally thought it was Mandragora, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we won't talk about the Amiga Don factor. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and and I was always disappointed that that Tim never turned up in Tim and the Rani, um, <laughs> but that might have I might have just read that wrong. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think this is um, just chock full of people giving a hundred and ten percent, or in Colin's case, two hundred and ten percent. Do you think he had to have a bit of a lie down after they finish each take just to sort yeah. of recover? <laughs> I think three months at the Priory <laughs> I think we need to talk about the bit in I think it's episode three With the volcanic eruption Okay Because this is, this is at Salamander's residence And people are popping out from there To go and have a lovely talk in this nice park And then we're on That's the veranda right, we're in Hungary aren't we So there's yeah. a lovely green and, Verdant yeah. Park, yeah. yeah. Mm. And how far do you think they can see with binoculars? <sighs> I mean, <laughs> 174 feet. I would, yeah. I would say, is about De- standard. Devastate, devastating volcanic eruption causing mm. widespread disaster. Uh, don't forget, the, Paul. This is the future, so yeah, you know, everything's. Yeah. So, uh, is there a the force field around the villa that's stopping any sort of <laughs> apart from haircuts? Obviously. They were. <laughs> They weren't binoculars. <laughs> they were the the forthcoming um, Apple yeah. uh, video screen video yeah. thing. Oh God, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh. And thus, he that was really able... took me out of it. I have to say that 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 scene. I thought, oh come on, this is just not quite. <laughs> There's a better way of doing this scene. <laughs> I think that's that's one of the things when you're when you're five, that would have been absolutely amazing. Um, sure. Mm-hmm. When you're slightly older and you have that little bit of critical uh, yeah. now, yes, it. it it, it does kind of push you a little bit from from being fully invested mm. in the story, but um, you know, again, it's 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 a curious distribution of money. You know, mm. but I they, mean, they could have spent even, more money even, on that. They could yeah. have. They could e- have, even if they just wafted some smoke into shot, it would have helped to sell that. So you've got Milton Johns around the side of the Hungarian, you know, flat, smoking a cigarette, blowing it yeah. out into the, yeah, that would have worked absolutely fine. And I think Milton would have enjoyed that as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just that feeling of a total disconnect between them standing on the balcony and what, what they're looking at. It's just there's just no there's no sense that they're even remotely in the same place. Are there any volcanoes in Hungary? There's a mountain range. Oh right. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know if that's volcanic. Listeners, writers. Well, let's just say it is. <laughs> it seems very much to be the attitude of the writers. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, if we if we're gonna start watching Doctor Who and start picking apart the science, then we're all in for a bit of a a long slog. <laughs> but did, did, uh, yeah, you make a yeah. you make a fair point yeah. there, Paul. But yeah, I, yeah. Did, it did, did we all come to this story after the Pertwee era? Uh, yes. Yes. 
So, so were we all thinking the same thing? Hang on, they're doing the same thing they did in Invasion of Dinosaurs. Um, yeah. Rather than it being the other way around. Because it is. It is it's, it's, it's a, a group's been kept underground under false pretenses at the bottom of the lift shaft and, and, and being told one thing when it's something else. You know, I had not thought of that until you brought it up. But that would, now I, you've ruined I, Invasion of the Dinosaurs for me, Malboy. Well, Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same plot twist, isn't it? And it it, it really almost, is, yeah. It, and, and it occurs halfway through the story. It just comes out of nowhere in both stories. And I, and I kind of can't help wondering if when they were doing... I mean, Barry Letts directed the story, for goodness sake, and he's the producer mm. on Invasion of Dinosaurs. He must have made the point, oh, we've done this before, let's try it again. It, it, he must have been aware of that. I don't know. I mean, if if you're working flat out to get these episodes out the door, mm. may, maybe, I mean, I don't know. I Like, if I, if I think of, for example, the four years I worked in, say, a bookshop, I couldn't really tell you what happened month to month. And maybe it's yeah. the same for Barry Letts. Maybe he's, he's so yeah. busy and, and your focus is just on the here and now. Maybe you genuinely don't remember. On the other hand, yeah. quite it's as easy to think he's sitting there in 1970, whatever, going, uh, yeah. what, "What can we do? What worked? Uh, what, what what did we do in my first?" If only they story? had an archive where they could just go pop down and get the old episodes out and just watch them back again, <laughs> rather than relying on the uh, the novelisation. Well, they did. Unfortunately, it was in a it was in a hangar in Saudi Arabia, and uh, ah. it's very difficult to get the episodes out of there. <laughs> I'm I'm so tempted to think that, and this is just you got to remember this is just before Terence Dix joins the show. Mm-hmm. He he literally comes on board with the following story as as Derek Sherwin's assistant, and so Terence probably had some awareness of, of of this story, as did obviously Barry Letts, and and I can't help thinking that they were totally aware of of. Um, you know, this connection that, yes, with Invasion of the Dinosaurs, they were doing the same thing again. And, and it's an awful temptation to go, let's pay tribute to this. Why don't we call one of the characters in Invasion of the Dinosaurs after the original writer? Did they? We have a Professor Whitaker. Oh, my God, I haven't seen that story for so long. <laughs> Anyone would think you're not a big fan of the Pertwee era, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... I mean, but that's pure speculation on my part. I've got nothing to back that up. <laughs> <laughs> but it's awfully tempting, isn't it? Yeah, oh. it's, it is. Uh, it's a small world, and there are not many names they can use by that point that don't kind of evoke yeah. someone. But uh, I, th- I think I think the show's still young enough to be an homage. Tell you what, Paul, if you uh, if you get uh, asked to do the info text for season eleven on the Blu-ray set, you've uh, you've set yourself a little task there. Hmm. I think I think the the. The stuff that I get to ask to work on is, is later than that, though, unfortunately. Uh-huh. I think all the Pertwee stuff's all sewn up. But oh, we shall see. exclusive for you. We shall see. <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> so, actually, one, one last thing that we should talk about before we maybe wrap this up is, do we think the ending confrontation kind of came off or, or not so much? I thought it was very good, but there just wasn't quite enough of it. Yeah, and I gather from what I've read that the, it was a very difficult uh, process for them to set up, and they had all sorts of problems trying to 
to make it work. But I think what we got to see was great. There was there was a camera fault, I think, which I yeah, that more. sounds right. Yeah, so it was think, the only shot they had. I think we we got away with it. Um, they got they got just enough to to sell it. Um, but given the pre, you know that we've had six episodes building up to this, it would have probably elevated the story to yet another level if you'd had a, a slightly more substantial uh, confrontation. I don't know. Yeah, it, it is kind of jarring that that, like you say, that that we've we've spent all this time anticipating the the confrontation, and it is so brief. Just leaves you wanting more, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I think there's a point that we haven't considered about the whole story um, and this comes back to it being a David Whittaker story is that to my mind it's it's a historical drama and we can say that because we're we're in the space year 2023 and obviously it's set in 2018 so from our perspective it is but I think even at the time David Whittaker is writing it as if it's one of his historical stories, but it's just set in the future, and that's the incidental nature of it. Because it's it's got that political intrigue, it's got all that sort of people like backstabbing into each other. It's it's doing all the things that the Whittaker um, era of Doctor Who with the historical dramas did, and and mm-hmm. and, and it just incidentally happens to be set in the future rather than the past. To my mind. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think, um, I mean, I, I was joking when I compared it to Shakespeare earlier, but it is that classic structure, um, which Whittaker, <laughs> it is that structure, yeah. you know, Whittaker was all over. So, yeah. Marvellous. Well, I think we should wrap this up and give it a score. And I'm going to come to Ian first. Oh, Ian, you, what would you, you like? fiend! <laughs> you rascal! How how can you pick? Right? Am I marking this on how much fun it was or how good of a story it is? Can I can I ask first? Because not being a regular on this, I'm not so familiar with your hmm. scoring system. Are, hmm. are, are we scoring it as in terms of just the Troughton era, or is it Doctor Who as a whole? I well, personally, the way I, I you can mark it however you like, but I personally, when I. Uh, when I put a mark in, it's usually just based on my personal enjoyment of this story in of itself. But you have to have a sort of a mental top and a bottom, right? Yeah, like if, yeah, if yeah. Time of Angels is a 10 and um, the Celestial Toymaker is a 1, that's kind of my... <laughs> that's, my I guess that's where I'm coming that's from. That's my where, rubric. Where do you yeah. rank it in terms yeah. of being Doctor Who? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, so... Come on, Ian. I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to give it a nine. I'm going to take one mm-hmm. mark away for the, you know, the the slight shortcomings perhaps in the story and in the uh, in the in the rather cavalier nature. We flit from country to country without so much as a crappy effects shot to establish that. But I think in terms of the performances and mainly the ones we've highlighted and and and, and dwelt upon and and of course for Benick's hair, you you can't go lower than a nine. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, Paul, what would you like to give this one? Um, I think possibly a seven or an eight. Maybe I'll just go for an eight, be generous. Okay, yeah. Okay. I am going to give it a ten. <gasps> I love this so much. You've done a wonderful job, the pair of you, of pointing out 
numerous shortcomings, <laughs> but it doesn't dull my excitement of watching it again for this. It's just a lot of fun. It's Doctor Who does James Bond. The cast are fantastic. You know, it's worth it just for Benick alone. And for that reason, I'm going to give it a 10. I mean, there are shortcomings in Hamlet. That doesn't stop it being an absolute classic. A timeless <laughs> classic. And this is Indeed. this is that good. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we thought of this story. Let's have some of your feedback and find out what you guys thought of The Enemy of the World. I've got mail. Okay, so let's see what you guys think of this story. And first up for me, we've heard from Richard Smith from the Something Who podcast. And Richard says, I always liked this story. The Ian Martin novelization was compelling and the soundtrack intriguing, but it was improved immeasurably by the moving pictures. Episode 1 is a tour de force and delighted me back in 2013. Great direction, funny, warm, and a great setup for the story. Subsequent episodes are also good. The subterranean lift shuttle is surprisingly well realised. It's quite unusual for a Doctor Who story of this or any era. It's got more in common with Caves of Androzani than the other stories in this season. Yeah, you got a, that's a good point there, Richard. Uh, he also goes on to say, The main downside is that Salamander's increasing importance to the plot necessarily sidelines the Doctor, and I'd rather have Troughton's multi-dimensional characterisation of the Doctor than his cod-Hispanic villain. But Salamander is nuanced and interesting and a proper menace. All in all, one of my favourite 60s stories, with good characterisation, a daft but compelling plot, and a story that sustains throughout its length. I'd reach for this one very easily. Thank you, Richard. And next up, we have heard from Dave Rennie. And Dave has his own podcast. It's called A Kettle and a Piece of String. It's really good. You should check it out. And he has this to say. A very refreshing change to the other stories in the season. It's great. It's came back and been reappraised so positively. Troughton is having a ball. Thank you, Dave. And we've also heard from Anthony Carroll. Anthony says, It was great to see it back, but... Heresy alert, it just does not do it for me. Slow in parts, naff underground dwellers, plot is a bit silly, but Troughton is superb. And love the plate smashing, 6 out of 10 for him. Thank you, Anthony. We have also heard from Rassilonian Legate. And they say, uh, before it was found, it was severely underrated for me, it's up there as one of Patrick Troughton's best, just because you can really see how good an actor he was. Thank you for that. And we've heard from Niklas Jonsson. And Niklas says, I love Enemy. It has Patrick Troughton playing three roles, the Doctor, Salamander, and the Doctor playing Salamander. And the twist halfway genuinely surprised me. I can't say enough good things about it. Thank you, Nicholas. Next up, we've got the other Anthony Carroll. We have two Anthony Carrolls. And uh, Anthony Carroll, too, says, I waited till Christmas for the DVD in 2013, and honestly, better than that day's Christmas special. 
a story that felt so forgotten that the twist bunker hit brilliantly for any first time watcher like me. The Empire Strikes Back of the Doctor flirts with the main woman protagonist trilogy. He does like to flirt with uh, Astrid in this one. Okay, um, lastly from me, we have heard from the Metabilis 2 podcast, another great podcast. I believe this is David. So David starts off by saying, Enemy of the World is serious grown-up television where the Doctor has to work out whom to trust and who is telling the truth. Whitaker skillfully depicts complex persons with multiple, even conflicting motivations. What's consistent, though, is that good people work for bad leaders and good people are killed because of this. For a fan of the 1970s, as I am, it's great to see Douglas, Pravda and Johns in these earlier roles. They are cast standouts, as are Netheim, Kerr and Peach. But my favourite guest actor is Carmen Monroe as Faria. Monroe's portrayal of this trapped woman in a horrible situation is brilliant. Her death is tragic, and like that of Denesh, is unjust in this bleak retro-future world. I love Troughton's joy at being at the seaside. I love Victoria's cosplaying Jamie and her exasperation with the Doctor wanting to play sandcastles to her worrying about him. You'll catch your death. Then with her on Jamie's lap in the helicopter. When written and directed this well, I could watch this TARDIS team for more than just season five. But alas, it was not to be. And that's from David. Thank you very much for that. Well, next up, we have got some audio from the legend that is Andy Moore. Right, my dear, I'm off to the location shoot. OK, Patrick, have a lovely time. And uh, say hello to Fraser for me, won't you? Yes, OK, will do. Bye now. Hello, my dear. <coughs> no. Hello, my dear. Yeah. <coughs> Hello, my dear. I'm home. And what time did you call this, Mr. Salamander, eh? I'm so sorry, my dear. I got held up doing sciencey stuff and things, you know? Supper, it smells excellent. Though. Oh, it smells excellent, does it, eh? Well, this isn't for you. This is for me and the kids. Yours is in the oh, dog because you didn't bloody come no, home. No, no, and another thing. I want another... Well, chaps, what did you make of that one? Very legal gentlemen. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm waiting for the lawyers to get in touch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we've, we've, yeah. we've got Andy Moore's home address, right? Uh, I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah, good. Just checking. Just checking. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you, Andy. That was brilliant. Ian, <clears throat> who have you heard from? Um, I have heard from a number of pe- a very large number of people by the just scrolling down what you've said. <laughs> Jesus, I'm going to be here all night. Oh, <laughs> Strap yourselves in, everyone. Um, or perhaps we'll put my list out as a, a second episode. I've heard from <laughs> Etapalak, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. Please get in touch and tell me how to say it. Uh, who says, Fun while it's there, and chock full of lots of well-acted and nicely observed characters. But the lack of sci-fi elements and the James Bond plot mean it doesn't really feel like Doctor Who, and more like a standard 60s action show. Six out of ten. 
other end of the spectrum, uh, Dwayne Bunny, I'm not implying, Dwayne, that you're on the spectrum, um, who says, On seeing this in full for the first time, it instantly became my favourite Second Doctor story. Utterly brilliant in every way, Troughton is magnificent. I mean, you can't argue with that, can you? You certainly can. John Rivers has a, a fascinating and insightful stream of consciousness. Uh, Carmen Munro, playing Faria, is great in this story. She was also great as Desmond's wife, Shirley, in the sitcom Desmond's. Come to think of it... I remember Desmond's. Come to think of it, Desmond's was great too. Bring back Desmond's. That spin-off pork pie wasn't so good, though. So, thank you, John. Um, I'll, <laughs> Thanks, I'll, John. I'll have to Google that now, because I'd love to see a bit more of her. She was uh, she was very, very good. Philip Edney, so we've, we've completed the... Uh, the sirens of audio dream team here this may be the best Troughton story ever recorded part of its brilliance is it is nothing like anything else around it a thriller a disaster film a whodunit a dystopian diatribe a tragedy more bond than who the hero and the villain played by one of the best actors ever on british tv Troughton himself the rest of the cast do not disappoint either. They really don't. The scope mm-hmm. of the story is also so huge. Part of the joy is that it was unknown to be this good until it was found. Episode 3 was better than it was given credit. But now the rest is found, we know it was the weakest episode. An absolute delight, if only they had the technology to do more split screens. I never tire of watching this. Now, next up is our, our good old friend Dave Kitchen. He's always got a, an exciting outlier of an opinion. Hello, Do Dave. we think he's going to like it? Do we think he's not? Oh, I'm going to I'm going to say he's going to like it. Okay, it's going to be one extreme or the other. <clears throat> <laughs> Middle of the pack in the romp that is season 5. Part 1 is great, so straight away we're at loggerheads. Most of the mm. cast are excellent. It's an enjoyable story. I do think the pacing is off, though. The Doctor spends several episodes bumming around wondering if Salamander is really a baddie. Given we, the audience, <laughs> see Salamander being a dick from part one, the Doctor just seems a bit of a fool as they try to stall the plot. I'd say he looks like a bit of a fool doing that sort of flying scissor kick as he runs around on the beach, but, you know, each to their own. <laughs> the underground base is the best thing in it, but I reckon comes into the story way too late. Don't get me wrong, a great adventure. But I think there's better this year. Two out of two. Now, either he's alluding to the fact that this is his second tweet, or he's given the story two (laughs) out of two, which, in my book, is ten out of ten. That's 100%. Yeah, it's not wrong. Uh, The Lord Reverend Cole... Igneous Mo, and again, I've probably butchered that. I loved the book when I was at school. The scale of it was so massive. Australia and Hungary in one story. I wasn't disappointed in the episodes. They're brilliant. Adrian Berry says, One of the target books I held back from getting. Wasn't a fan when I saw an episode on the Troughton Years video. When Web of Fear and this got found, I thought, great to have Web, still indifferent. Watched it and completely changed my mind. Troughton is brilliant. Camo Hatman. 
such an intricate and impressive story. I don't know what delivery that was. I've got, I've got such an intricate. And imp- I'll do. I'll do. I'll do them all in silly voices. That'll um, lend nothing to the proceedings. Sorry, Camo Hatman. Let me let me take a running jump and come at this again. Such an intricate and impressive story. The highlight is definitely Troughton's dual roles and he plays both parts brilliantly. I love the final scene of episode 5 where Salamander, sorry, episode 6, where Salamander has his big brutal death scene being sucked out into the time vortex. Very glad this was recovered. And finally, from the randomizer pod, and I'm guessing Tim from the randomizer pod, I mean, I've got a 50-50 chance of being right. <laughs> he says of the story balmiest plot twist ever with the whole underground society thing. Also, keeping someone captive in a corridor brings a whole new meaning to open prison. Absolutely. Comedy chef, good plot lines for Jamie and Victoria, Mary Peach is awesome, George Pravda, Milton Johns, Double Troughton. Love it all. Such a great rediscovery. There's a lot of love for this story. And Paul, who have you heard from? Ooh, we've heard from Linton Keneally. Hello, Linton. And Linton says, probably the most underrated story till its discovery in 2013. I think we're mostly in agreement with that. Mm, yes. Darren Lodge. Hello, Darren. Darren says, a little gem, this one. Not a monster story or a base under siege either. Just a great spy story and the Doctor playing dressing up. Although he's not dressing not up when he's on the beach. <laughs> no. <laughs> dressing down. <laughs> uh, Nathan Bottomley. Hello, Nathan. Says, brilliant. Best of a fairly dreary season. Ooh, is the rest of the season dreary? Da- damning with faint praise there, yeah. Nathan. Cliff, any work going... Any voice work going? That's an unusual name. Do your parents call you that? <laughs> He's giving Cliff, himself a plug there. That's, yeah. uh, that's Cliff, any voice work going? Question mark. Chapman says, astonishingly good and bodes well for other forgotten stories if ever recovered. Troughton is magnificent. Guest cast, all great. Never really got into the audio, so seeing how it carries on after the very familiar episode 3 was as thrilling as episode 1 or episode 6. Simon Moore, he's got a two-part tweet here. Hello, Simon. Simon says, I must have been one of the few to love the then solo surviving episode three. The setting so intrigued me, and Troughton is brilliant as Salamander in that episode. The telesnap recon gripped me. It was one of the few recons, like power, that I would return to. And he goes on to say, Such a great supporting cast and an engaging story which goes the distance. My only criticism is that the end is very rushed. Yeah, I think we agree with that. Yeah, that's true. If the last 10 minutes had had filled the entirety of the last episode, it would have worked better. But love, love, love this one, despite any niggling flaws. Adam Taylor. Adam says, I was bored this morning and decided to put this on. My partner stopped what she was doing and watched all six parts and audibly gasped when we found out Salamander has an underground base and that Kent is a double agent. She now claims it as her favourite story she's seen. Yay! That also begs the immediate question, how many stories has your partner seen? (laughs) It may be the only one. (laughs) (laughs) 
And we've also heard from 26 glorious years. Well, hello, 26. Great casting throughout. Eye-catching model work. How wonderful to have those visuals that last for episode four. And that much anticipated face-off, no pun intended, in the final scene. Oh, and when I bought the Troughton Years VHS, I was intrigued rather than underwhelmed by episode three. Smiley face. And that's my lot. Wonderful. Thank you all so much for getting in touch. We really do appreciate hearing what you think of these stories. And if you'd like to do that on a future story, all the various ways and means are listed over our end credits. So before we say goodbye to Paul, we are going to do some recommendations. Okay, so Paul, what have you got for our listeners? What's What I've been enjoying at the moment is I've been reading a series of books by an author called Mick Heron. Oh. And he writes a um, series of crime novels. Um, you may be familiar with the television series Slow Horses. Have you watched that? I have heard of it. I haven't seen it yet, but I've Highly heard recommended. good things about it. Yeah. Highly recommended. I, I discovered the television series in, in its first season. There's two seasons of it so far. And I immediately looked up, you know, started um, trying to track down the novels on which they're based. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole series of books and very, very, very well written. Highly recommended. The television series is great, but the books are much better. There's so much more, mm -hmm. more detail and character development in them. They're, <laughs> they're, in, a, in a nutshell, they're about a, a rebel bunch of um, disgraced MI5 agents in a um, rundown building in London who, who take on um, these spy jobs that MI5 don't want to dirty their hands with. Um, mm. And it's run by a, a character uh, called Jackson Lamb, who, who is probably the most obnoxious character you could ever come across in fiction. <laughs> and, and Mick Heron goes into great detail explaining all about his disgusting habits, his, his, his drunkenness, his smoking, his, his you know, wiping his hand on his nose and then on his clothes and all this sort of thing. It's just the vividness of the writing is, is just extraordinary and all the characters come alive on the page and they really, really are highly recommended. I've read all of the slow horses books now which has kind of spoilt the rest of the television series when they come out for ah. me even though i will catch them <laughs> but i will <laughs> say that the um the television series is taking a slightly different path with the characters so there's there's a lot okay. to, there's a lot that you won't necessarily sort of so have still worth for reading you. the books yeah oh definitely there, there's a, mm. some there's there's a high uh, mortality rate in the series mm -hmm. you you can fall in love with a character and you're absolutely convinced they're the main character and then they get killed right. off in the next book sudden very very this suddenly. is sounding a bit like i don't know if you know a uk show called spooks yeah, oh yes it's was i was going to say times. if you like spooks then then definitely this is the this is the natural oh, wow. successor so oh, yes i'll have to give that a try then yeah so it, oh, it, great it recommendation brilliant ian what have you got for us I'll give you two this time around because I think I owe you okay. one from a previous episode where I, I wow. hadn't absorbed any culture. Mm -hmm. So firstly, on the subject of people trapped in an underground silo, um, I've been really enjoying the Apple TV show Silo based on the wool novels by, I want to say, Hugh Howie. Um, I'm not going to say too much about the show other than if you like uh, bleak science fiction, this is right up your straza or down your silo 
as we say. No one says that. No one says that. (laughs) And secondly, in the world of podcasting, I've been very much enjoying Call Jonathan Pye. Anyone who's got Facebook will know who Jonathan Pye is and will have seen his sweary, ranty, uh, you know, news news broadcasts. This is a uh, full comedy series where the character is given his own late-night phone-in show and basically struggles to... contain his sweary rants he fails and there are sweary rants if you like swearing and ranting about politics and (laughs) inside baseball i do this is again very much the thing for you Mm -hmm. do do you know i i had silo down as my second choice (laughs) for my my recommendation so i'm glad i went with mick here and so i wasn't overlapping with you (laughs) wonderful thanks ian um Mine is perhaps not quite as highbrow as either of yours, but I do find it incredibly entertaining. Uh, I have decided to go back to the start and uh, rewatch Ted Lasso, which is a show on Apple TV Plus, and the final season is just finished. Um, but uh, I got into it and uh, suggested my wife might like to watch it as well. She's not a football fan at all. Uh, but she really enjoyed the first season so we're now embarking on season two so I can't wait to see what happens because I've already seen the first two seasons so we're just going to work our way through those and get up to to season three so the the idea in a nutshell is that uh, there's a Premier League football club uh, which has come into the ownership of a woman who's just uh, settled a rather bitter divorce and uh, she got ownership of the club and her idea is to get her own back on her husband she will run it into the ground by hiring someone she feels is completely inappropriate to be the manager of the team the named ted lasso uh, who has done incredible things in uh, american football but knows next to nothing about football as we call it in the uk and uh, i mean football is the thing that kind of starts the whole thing rolling uh, but it's not really about the football so much as the the character dynamics and uh, it's got a great cast and it's very funny and uh, i would certainly recommend it you're about the fourth person to recommend that series to me but i haven't actually watched a single episode of it yet it's great i mean you don't have to like football to well to i don't enjoy so it. that's the thing soft book oh, well, yeah. <laughs> well give it but, give it a try and i yeah. think you might be pleasantly surprised no, i will do we'll do well, uh, Paul, thank you so much for coming on again. It's been lovely to have you on. Yeah, thank you for having me. I've been thoroughly enjoyed myself. Excellent. Do you have anything you'd like to give a little plug to before you uh, disappear? Um, I'm still working. I have to be very careful. What, what What's coming out that I've worked on? <laughs> I, I, I seem to work so far ahead on things. I'm, I, I'm, I'm doing um, Blu-ray subtitles for most of the box sets that are coming out. So uh-huh. Most of the oh, ones, but not all of the ones that come out have got, got me on them. Um, mm-hmm. I, I recorded a audio commentary for uh, the Season 2 box set on The Lion. So have a listen yes, to that. Yes, it's fantastic. Yeah. And um, I also write regularly for Panini for Doctor Who magazine. I do a um, regular series of columns in the um, brilliant uh, Chronicles bookazine series about the comic strips called State of the Art. 
So mm. each time there's a different year that the Chronicles are looking at, I've got a got an article about what the comic strips were doing in that year. So oh, that's cool. a regular from me. And I also is write... Is your book still available? I think it is, yeah. I think it's still in print. Yeah. Yeah, and there's, there's, there's oh, the yeah. ever-present threat of a second volume. And... <laughs> And um, I'm also on, on also on comics. I'm writing um, commentaries for the Panini graphic novels, which um, appear on the back of the book. Oh wow! So that's a recent gig for me. I've I've done uh, so far. I've done um, ones for the two Dalek volumes. Nice. They're, they're hopefully, fingers crossed, going to keep going. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been lovely to have you back. Mm, thank you. We'll have to do this again sometime. Absolutely, we shall. So, until next time, when we'll be taking a trip down into the underground. I was Mark. I was Ian. And I was Paul. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at mailbagofrassilon at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Time and Space Pod. And you can also find us on Facebook. If you want to leave some audio feedback, there is a link in the show notes. You can use your phone or your computer and leave up to 60 seconds of feedback. Or if you're listening via the Anchor website, you can click on the message button and leave your audio. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you to Momo Tempo for providing our theme music. <laughs>